So, uh, last Sunday was our kickoff in our series on the book of the Revelation. We are off to a flying start, okay? Last week I spent the greater part of the sermon time um, giving you an overview, um, some, I think, really important background information in order to set a stage and, and lay a foundation so that you understand what this book is, is all about. As we journey together on this study, um, I want to take a book that is very mystical, in some ways hard to understand, and really help you understand it. If you missed last week, I would strongly encourage you to get a CD or go online and listen to the podcast, like Steph said. Uh, my great hope is this. If you miss a week, you'll stay caught up. I also hope that you're reading ahead. I said this last time. Read ahead so that when we open the revelation together, you won't go, oh, wow, that's the first I ever saw that. But if you're reading ahead, it'll kind of not only help keep you up to speed, but I think in some ways it'll enhance and increase what you learn in this series. Okay? Thank you. Before we dig in, um, I want to read you uh, some highlights from an article that was in this past Monday's Denver Post. Uh, I don't know if I can make this a weekly feature. It just depends on the material I find or you send to me. But uh, this would go under the title of Sure Signs That the End is Near. Okay? This was in Monday's Denver Post. It's an article from Nairobi, Kenya. Over the weekend, a Somali radio station run by Al-Shabaab, the most powerful Islamist militant group in the war-ravaged country, held an awards ceremony to honor children who are experts in Shabaab trivia and at reciting the Koran. The prizes? Listen to this. The first and second place winners won AK-47 assault rifles some money, and Islamic books. The third place winner was given two hand grenades. The contest was for children ages 10 to 17. If that's not a sure sign that the end is coming soon, I don't know what in the world is. Wow. We're not going to have time every week to do a lot of review of the previous weeks. I mean, I like to make sure that people are up to speed, so I usually take some time doing that. We don't have time for that. So that's why I want to encourage you to go online and listen or get a CD if you miss so that you can stay caught up. Also would encourage you to take notes. I had a meeting this week with someone who said, I never take notes. I let my wife take notes and I read her notes. But he he said to me, I went out and bought a a notebook this week because I am going to take notes. I've never read this book before. And I'm so intrigued. I'm so excited about what we're going to learn. So I would strongly encourage you to take notes, okay? Because this book is life-changing. All right? So that's kind of it. Um, There is one verse, though, that I do want to review. And the reason is it sets the foundation and the course for the entire book of the Revelation. So we are going to look very quickly at the first verse of the book, Revelation 1.1. It says there, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. Now, as we go along, there are going to be words highlighted in the verses on the screen that I want to take just a moment to talk about. The first thing I want to remind you of is when John got this revelation, 
the Lord himself said these things must take place. They must take place. The Greek there is the word dei, D-E-I. And it means something that is of logical necessity. It's an inevitable result of a bigger plan. Why is that an important word? Because you and I are tempted when life gets crazy and chaotic. And I'm not just talking our own lives. But think about what I just read to you out of the newspaper. They're giving AK-47 assault rifles to kids. And the third place finisher got two grenades. In those moments, we are so tempted to just freak out, aren't we? To panic and think, oh my gosh, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's not getting any better. It's just getting worse. What's going on? From the get-go of this book, God wants you to know this is all under control. He's still on the throne. No, that wouldn't be his perfect will for those children. Or so many of the things going on in this world is not his absolute perfect will. But God knew from the beginning that things were going to get this crazy. They must take place. That is a statement, folks, of God's absolute sovereignty in the midst of the chaos. Amen? You've got to hang on to that because I think it's going to get crazier before it gets better. Okay. God, in, in the midst of all this mystery and apocalyptical language and things that are being unfolded and unveiled to us, God and his plan are behind it all. It will unfold exactly as he has always known it would. Take that to the bank, okay? Put that one in your heart. It says, shortly these things must take place. That's not shortly in our sense of understanding time on a continuum. Literally what that word means is it's going to happen without any delays. Nothing can thwart or hinder God's perfect timing in his plan being fulfilled. No matter how crazy, how goofy, how wild, how wacky it gets, God's got the clock in his hand. Okay? What we need to do is not make shortly mean what we want shortly to mean. We trust him in his sovereignty in the midst of all that. The other word I want you to see there is he sent and communicated this to John by that angel. That word means literally is signified. And it's signified as where we get the word sign. It's a figurative representation of what's going to happen. It's, it's filled with figures of speech and similes and all kinds of things because it's impossible to put into human words, totally accurate words, exactly what he saw, okay? So God himself is saying, this is symbolic in many ways of what's coming down the road. John uses the word like so often. It's like this and it's like that because he didn't have words to describe what he was seeing. Keep that in mind as we go on, okay? So, Let's pick up where we left off last time at at the first of the four visions in this book of the Revelation. This first one is a vision of Jesus, and it is amazing. Now, I've asked each week that we'd have a reader. John Larson's going to read for us today. So, John, if you'd come forward. Um, I would love if more of you would volunteer to help with this, okay? Um, So I don't have to just call people and ask them. If you're willing to read, if you'd let me know that, that would be great. We are going to each week read aloud together so that uh, we are doing what the scripture says. Because the third verse of this book says, you are blessed if you read. So you get a blessing in doing this. And you are blessed if you hear the word. This book was meant to be read in this kind of context, in a public worship service. 
it was to be read. And I would like to encourage you and ask you, if you would, to stand as we read together the word of God. So, John, here you go. Thanks. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you have seen and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the seven lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Write, therefore, the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's pick it up with what John read for us. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love it that he calls himself a fellow partaker in the tribulation. He calls himself our brother. Even in the midst of the isolation that he was experiencing in that prison, and it was a nasty place. The island is a lot like Alcatraz in that it's just a, like all rock and nothing really grows there. It's a lot bigger than Alcatraz. But John was in a bad place in terrible isolation and persecution because he would not deny his faith in Jesus. But he has foresight. He has insight to realize that we're all in this together, aren't we? He's in isolation. But he understood that he was our fellow partaker, that we were brothers in this thing. I think it's going to get more important as time goes on for us to understand and realize the importance of fellowship with other Christians as things might get a little tougher or a little worse for us. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Remember, when you read those words in this book, in the spirit, I was in the spirit. It's kind of that catchphrase, that trigger phase to show us that a new vision is coming. More of the revelation is coming. There are four different revelations in this book. This is the first one. I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. Was it a trumpet? No, it wasn't a trumpet, but it was like a trumpet. I don't know how else to describe this. Trumpets in scripture herald things. And it was a way to say, this is an important message coming our way. 
In Ezekiel 3 and Daniel 10, it talks about the voice of God being this loud voice, like a great rushing or rumbling tumult. John can't put words to this voice, but it is a powerful voice. A powerful, powerful voice. And he lists then the seven churches. I think I told you last week, these are seven literal churches. Put the next slide up. That is modern day Turkey. And all of those churches are in about a hundred mile radius of each other. Okay. So they are literal churches. But I also said that the number seven is a biblical number of perfection and completion. There's a belief, and I hold this belief, that this is not just a message historically to seven churches at that time, but that this is a picture of the church universal, and that God in these seven letters is showing us the plumb line, the standard of what he expects for his church today. There are some scholars who believe that these seven churches in a chronological order also represent seven periods of history in church history. I don't so much know about that one, but I have discovered this about this here book called the Bible. It has an amazing ability to have multiple messages all at the same time. Does it not? It can speak to a room full of people in a different way as there are people in the room. And so while I don't know if it's got something to do with church history and different stages and ages in that, but This book has a powerful message. We are not just talking about, oh, you know, history 2,000 years ago. Keep your eyes and ears open to what the Spirit wants to say to you today. Okay? Is that a deal? Can we do that? This isn't a history lesson, folks. This has got implication and impact on our very lives today. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash or golden girdle. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Before we get to all the little descriptive phrases used there of this one that John had the vision of. The most important thing you can realize is this is a picture of Jesus where? In the midst of his church. Don't ever, ever, ever get the perception that the Trinity sits in heaven looking down upon us from some great distance, smiling when we do good, frowning when we do bad, but distant from us. This is a picture of Jesus walking among his churches. Is that history or is that today? It's both. It was history, but it's so true today. Jesus still, in a very personal way by the Holy Spirit, walks among us today. Now, he does that in individual churches. He does that with individuals within churches. But he also does that in the church universal. There is a tremendous unity in the church of Jesus Christ. Not from the standpoint of we're all organized the same or we all have every little doctoral issue the same. It's not about sameness. The thing that unifies us is the relationship we have with Jesus, that he walks among us. And those seven stars are seven angels that represent the seven churches. He holds us in his right hand. 
That's a position of power and authority. It's also a proximity issue in that we are near and dear to him and close to him in every respect. We, we receive prominent care from him at all times. Isn't that great news? Wow. This vision in verses 12 through 16 is very similar to a vision that Daniel had in Daniel 7. Again, that word like is used so often because it points to how awesome this vision was and how almost indescribable this one like a son of man was. He had on a long robe and a golden sash. That was the outfit of a high priest in the Old Testament. On your own, make yourself a note. Go read Hebrews chapter 7 through 10 if you want an amazing picture of Jesus as our high priest, the mediator of a new and better covenant. It'll blow you away what he has done for us. It's, it's wonderful. When it says his hair was white like wool, that's not a, a statement about his purity or holiness. It's a statement about his deity. There are, there are pictures of God, the everlasting one, God the Father in the Old Testament that make that same reference to his hair being white like wool. It shows and proves again that Jesus is God. He is God the Son that is under such onslaught and such attack at all times coming against the Christian faith that he wasn't God. Time and time and time again, this book says and proves and shows, yes, indeed he was. He absolutely was. His eyes were like a flame of fire. There's two things meant by that. A combination of his all-searching omniscience that he looks to and fro and he knows everything. But it's also a picture that refers to Revelation 19.12. We'll get there a while down the road. But it's a picture of the coming conquering king who comes with eyes that are a flame of fire. And it's a picture of his holy wrath. Folks, there's a day coming when gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is no more. When it's not the lamb who shows up, it's the conquering king who shows up. And in his holy wrath, he will destroy all of his enemies. Does he get any pleasure out of that? I don't think so. The Bible says God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. It's not his first best choice for anyone. But there are people who live who will not bow their knee to Christ. Who will not submit to him as Lord. As a matter of fact, they are, they are overt enemies of his. There's a day coming when God, after having done everything in his power to draw them back to repentance, says enough. And that's the point at which Jesus comes with these eyes like a flaming fire to destroy all of his enemies. Some people say, well, that's not the God I know. Well, you better get acquainted, okay? Because that's the God who is. His feet were like burnished bronze. He had a voice like the sound of many waters, symbolizing his power, his might, his awesome majesty. In his mouth, it says there was a two-edged sword. What does that symbolize in scripture? The two-edged sword. The word of God. Ephesians six seventeen talks about that two-edged sword, the Bible, the word of God being one of our greatest weapons in the spiritual battle that we're in. But Hebrews 4.12 says this also about this two-edged sword. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
Folks, when Jesus comes again with those eyes of flaming fire, Revelation 19 also talks about him having that sword in his mouth. What that means is all the enemies of God will be put up for judgment and by the word of God, they will be judged accordingly. There will be no excuses. There won't be just a judgment of people's activity and behavior. The word of God will judge the intents of their heart. And so in God's perfect, righteous, holiness, justice, no one will have an excuse because this book right here will judge them and they'll be without excuse. That's a powerful picture, isn't it? If that's not the Jesus you know, you better get acquainted with him because that's who's coming again. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Again, shows the glory of the the risen Christ. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is not the one coming back. He is now the risen Christ, exalted in great power and great glory. Thank you. Is there another hallelujah in the room? Man, this is hallelujah worthy, folks. This is who's coming again. It's Jesus. Well, you know, after that, John had your typical ho-hum response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That seems like a fitting response. Don't you think you'd respond that way? I think I would. If I had that vision of Jesus, falling at his feet like a dead man would not be out of, the, out of the realm of possibility. And yet Jesus himself comforts him. Jesus himself reassures John, don't be afraid. Now, it's not said in the book of the Revelation many times, if at all. But the underlying message of this book from chapter 1 to chapter 22 is, don't be afraid. I don't care how crazy it gets, how bad it gets, whether that's personally, corporately, as a nation, as a world, no matter how bad it gets, the the message over and over and over and over again to you and me is, don't be afraid. Why? Because these things must take place. God's got it all under control. God is still in charge. Now, there's a pattern we're going to discover as we go through this book. Okay, we'll see it time and time again. So often when something awesome or terrible is revealed as to either what just happened or what's normally it's what's about to happen next. Jesus makes like a pause in the narrative before the bad news comes. And he gives John and us, by the way, because this book is for us, a glimpse into the throne room. So before we hear the bad news and how bad it's going to get, we get a glimpse into the throne room. You know why? Because we need reassured that no matter what life looks like, God is still on the throne. God is still in control at all times. It says there, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The Greek literally there is ego emi, which means I, I am. Again, another absolute statement about him being God. Remember when Moses was asked by God to go lead the people out of of Egypt and he said, well, who should I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. It was common knowledge. Everyone knew that to use the term I am is a statement that you are God. So for Jesus here to say, ego emi, I, I am, again, was a statement of his absolute divinity. Absolutely, Jesus is God. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. I was dead. 
Gnosticism, as I've told you before, was one of the prevailing attitudes coming against the church at that time. Gnosticism believed that Jesus just came as a spirit. He was a ghost. He was a phantom. He didn't really have a body because evil had physical presence. Spirit, good, didn't have that. There's one problem with that theory. If Jesus didn't have a body and didn't have flesh and blood, then what couldn't he have done for us? He couldn't have shed that blood and died on the cross. And so when he said, I was dead, he says, I want you to know I lived and I died. Behold, meaning see for yourself. Here I am. Here's the evidence. I am alive again. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys are always a symbol of power and authority and control over something. Jesus said, I have control over death. The last enemy that he vanquished is death. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, meaning Jesus came in the flesh, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. There's a lot of people who are scared or who are afraid of death. They're scared to die. Some of you might be. I've known Christians who are. I want you to know today that if you're in Jesus, if you've trusted him as Lord and Savior, you don't have to be afraid of death. You can know what's on the other side. You can know what he's provided for you. You don't have to cross your fingers and hope that somehow you've been good enough to get into heaven. Okay? I've, I've shared this with you before. God does not grade on a curve. It's not like everybody gets in this big line and if you've done better than the people around you, you get in. See, if that were the case, I would be in great shape. My last name's Hitler, uh, Hummel. Hitler would be before me, and Attila the Hun, because that's got to be his last name, would be after me. So if I'm standing between Hitler and Attila the Hun, I look good. Does God grade on that kind of curve? No. We can be assured of heaven. We don't have to be afraid of death because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross by shedding his blood. You don't have to be afraid of dying. Because glory awaits you on the other side. He has the keys of Hades. That's not hell. Hades is the place where people go when they die. They await their final assignment, their final judgment. We'll talk about in Revelation 20 in that place. There's a good side to it called Abraham's bosom. There's a not so good side to it that has torment and a lot of bad stuff in it. Luke chapter 16 talks about that if you want to do a little more study on your own. Therefore, write these things which you've seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So he's saying, write what you've seen, but also write the things that are going to take place after. Write the prophetic part, the futuristic part of this book, John. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. These seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. It caused me to wonder this week. Those churches had specific angels assigned to them. I wonder if all churches have like a guardian angel. Wouldn't that be a cool thing? I sure hope ours isn't Clarence Oddbody from... It's a wonderful life. I hope we can do better than that. But I think there's some truth to that. That God, in his loving care, as Jesus walks among his churches, assigns an angel to each church and says, your commission is to go and serve them, to protect them, to bless them, to be with them, to cover them. Isn't that a cool thought? 
I think that's what we got going for us. I don't know who ours is. I'd like to find out sometime. But I think that's a, a very cool thought. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, notice that the, the churches are not the lamps themselves. I think that means we, both individually and collectively as a church, um, we're the lamps. We're the light of the world, Jesus said. And that the church, the organization, exists to support and serve the lamp. Jesus is the light of the world. We support him. But also the church exists to support and serve the people who are a part of the church. We've got to make sure we have that squared away and straight in our thinking. Okay, we're going to get into chapter 2 now and talk about the first of the seven letters. So John, if you'd come back and read for us, please, Revelation um, 2, verses 1 through 7. The the letter to uh, Ephesus, if you would. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thanks, John. You can have a seat. All right, before we tackle that first one, let me just give you a a little summary and overview. There's a pattern in all these letters, okay? There's commendation. This is good. You're doing this well. And there's also exhortation and rebuke, usually starting with the words, but this I have against you. There's a call to repent in every one of these letters. There's a call to hear what the Spirit is saying. And I want you to understand this. That is a choice that you and I make. God never puts you in a little spiritual headlock and says, you're going to listen. We have opportunity, if we so choose, to hear what the Spirit wants to speak to our hearts. Do you want to hear what the Spirit speaks to your heart? You're going to have a great opportunity here in a minute because I, I know it's something that God wants to speak and desires to speak to all of our hearts. And then finally, there's a promise if you overcome. All of the churches receive commendation except Laodicea. Now, there's a kind of a veiled one to Sardis. It's pretty minimal. Um, But there are also two that have no corrective rebuke. Smyrna and Philadelphia are those two. Every one of these seven churches receives a promise, a reward for overcoming. That's the structure of each of these little letters. Some of them are longer than others. Um, Kind of off the point, on the point. Any of you here have Nike tennis shoes? Not that you have to have them on right now. Do you have Nikes? I'm not going to get on you. It's fine to have Nikes. I have Nikes. Okay, that wasn't like a trick question if you put your hand up and go, ha The Nike swoosh is a symbol for overcomers and conquerors. Nike picked that on purpose because the Greek word for conqueror or overcomer is the word nikeo, from which they get the word Nike. You are destined to be an overcomer. Do you know that? No matter how bad it gets, you are destined to be an overcomer. You are destined to be a conqueror. no. You are more than a conqueror. 
right? In Jesus. So remember, folks, no matter how bad it gets, you're an overcomer. God, by his grace, will help you overcome the circumstances and the situations that you might face. But you see, to be called a conqueror, to be called an overcomer, assumes hardship. It assumes difficulty and suffering and tribulation. Hey, if you go through nothing, you have nothing to overcome. The very fact that God calls you an overcomer implies that you are going to be in a battle. You're going to go through a battle, but you can have victory in the midst of that. Here's the most important, exciting thing to me in in the midst of that concept of being an overcomer. The one who walks among his churches, Jesus, is the same one who will walk you through any difficulty, any obstacle, any suffering, any tribulation that might come your way. That's how faithful he is to us in the midst of these things that must surely, shortly take place. All right. I need to do this. I I just can't get around it because I think it helps us understand and it frames up the bigger picture, the overarching plan that God has in mind for his people. This is an important point to the uh, redemptive story of the book of the Revelation. When God has a plan for his people, his people includes two peoples, okay? We the church and also Israel, the chosen people. Now, I preached upon this um, July 31st, just, you know, a little over a month ago. But there are little points in this I think are worth repeating because it helps us frame this thing up and keep in mind the bigger plan that God has. There's a theology that's existed especially strongly in the past 50 years called replacement theology or fulfillment theology. The basic belief in this theology is that Israel rejected Christ as the Messiah, so they blew it and they forfeited their position in God's redemptive plan. This theology believes that the church is now the the new Israel and that all the covenant promises God made to Israel are now ours instead of theirs. So we have just replaced them. Uh, I, I need to speak to this. I think it's a very erroneous understanding of God's bigger picture plan. In Luke chapter 21, the disciples asked Jesus about the destruction of the temple. And so Jesus, what are going to be the signs of your coming? Verses 20 through 28 of Luke 21 talks about that. But I want to zero in on verse 24 because it helps us make a very important point. This is what Jesus said about what was going to happen. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Times of the Gentiles is that little phrase I want you to hold on to for just a moment, okay? What are the times of the Gentiles? It's the church age. It's the day in which we are living. We are now the focal point of God's redemptive plan. But we have not replaced Israel. They are still God's chosen people. God's covenant with them, God says, is an everlasting covenant. Does an everlasting covenant ever end? Does it ever run out? Is it ever null and void? No. So while we live under the new covenant, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a new and better covenant, Hebrews says that clearly, our covenant's a lot better than the Old Testament covenant, that does not negate God's everlasting promise to Israel. Here's what Paul said about that in Romans chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? That's talking about Israel. May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
Benjamin. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's talking about the Jews, and you being a wild olive, that's talking about us as Gentiles, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you're arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. That's talk, the root is God's plan of grace and mercy, the covenant he has now extended to us. We partake in that, okay? We didn't replace them. We just, by God's grace and mercy, get to participate in this covenant salvation he's provided through Jesus. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, grafted back in. For God is able to graft them in again. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles, there's that phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The point is, we are not the new tree. There is no new tree. We don't replace the old tree. By God's grace and mercy, we get to participate in this rich root of his covenant promises given to Abraham and fulfilled through Jesus. As we attempt to, to understand the, the view of the revelation and God's bigger eternal plan and purpose today, we have to understand it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about something much bigger than that, right? Beth Moore has, I think, a great analogy of this. I listened to her teaching that she did on the revelation that the women's ministry did a while ago. I hope this works for you. She said it's like God had this plan for Israel and he's on the phone with Israel working out this plan. And because of their hardening, he puts them on hold and then pushes the other button and now starts to unfold the plan for the Gentiles, us, the church, the church age. But there's a day coming when God will put us back on hold and push Israel's button and reveal the full plan for them. It's not either or. We like to live in this either or world. Folks, this is a both and covenant promise that God makes. I want you and I want me just to be so glad we're in on it. Amen. Don't be arrogant. Don't think we're it. We're just glad to be included. Okay. And, and here's the other thing I love about all this. We have this picture of Jesus walking among the seven churches. And as he delivers this specific message to them, we have to remember God's heart for Israel in the midst of all this as well. His eternal plan and purpose for them is the same thing we find in the Revelation. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12 says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. God's heart is to walk among the churches and to walk among his people, Israel. It's a both and, not an either or. Okay, let's get to this uh, letter to Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Here, here's the scoop on Ephesus, okay? It's a very large city for that time. It was about a quarter of a million people. It was a chief city of Asia Minor. It was an education and a literary center of the whole Roman Empire. It was a hub for Christianity. Much of the mission work in the early church spread out from Ephesus. It also was a seaport and had a very large marketplace. The other thing it had was a major temple to the goddess Diana, which caused a whole lot of problems in that time. 
To the angel in the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. How does that sound so far? Woohoo! That's pretty good, folks. I think that's a great word about that church. He knows their deeds. He knows their toil. He knows how active they've been for the sake of the gospel. He also knows that they've persevered. They have not given up. They've not grown weary. Every time I read that, I think of the church in Haiti and Pastor Marcel. Those people embody what that scripture says. It also says that you don't endure evil men. That you don't permit them to have a voice in your church or a say in what goes on. You don't tolerate them. You don't put up with them. That's not talking about unsaved people. We always need to have a heart to embrace the unsaved. We can never or should never have an attitude that says, you just get out of here. You're too filthy. You're too dirty. You're too bad. This is talking about so-called Christians, people who purported to be believers. That's who they didn't endure. That's who the evil men were. They claimed to be apostles. And the Lord Jesus commends them for putting those to the test. You know, we live in a politically correct society. And that's overspilled into the church in, I think, some pretty bad ways. I want to say this to you today, church. Never, ever be afraid to test or to discern what some so-called apostle or prophet or teacher brings to you as the word of God. I will never have a problem if you take what I say and compare it to the word of God. And if I am coming up short, I want to know that. I work hard not to do that. But anybody who is a true apostle or prophet or teacher should never be offended by being tested in what they say. Ever. Ever. The scripture is so clear. Acts 20 verse 28 says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer and a shepherd of God, which he purchased with his own blood. It talks about savage wolves coming in trying to rip the church apart. 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Do you know there are false prophets and false apostles? There are. And listen, just because somebody prints up a little badge and calls themselves apostle or prophet or or anything else, that doesn't mean nothing. Someone who is a true apostle, a a true prophet, a true teacher doesn't have to have a badge, but the people should identify that gift within them. It's not about labels and titles, okay? It's about having a right heart before God in the ministry that you do. And, And... Jesus commends this church for having the courage to stand up in the face of that. That's a good thing. There's there's an awful lot of bad teaching out there in the body of Christ. There's an awful lot of prophetic mess out there in the body of Christ. And that does not mean we we reject the prophetic. It means that we have the courage to discern. Right? Okay, we we swallow the hay and spit out the sticks. It's kind of how it should work. But we have it. We let it work. We want it to work. But I have this against you. That you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent.
you've left your first love. Does that mean Christ or does it mean other people? I think the answer is yes. The, the great commandment, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The next one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I think those two things are so intertwined and interwoven, they're almost inseparable. To leave your first love means that you have drawn away, pulled away, for whatever reason, from Christ and from your brothers and sisters. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and this might not be very popular, but I, I think it needs to be said, okay? To leave your first love, I also think, is referring to, well, not directly, it's referring to people who leave the church, who disenfranchise themselves from the body of Christ. You may sit here and go, the church is a mess. I know. So are you. You either are or you were, but Jesus had the grace to save you and redeem you and is still working on you. He's doing the same with his church. You see, we're we're called to love the things that Jesus loves. And there's nothing clearer to me than the fact that Jesus loves his church. Amen? And so I think to leave your first love, people do not understand the, the internal personal damage they do to themselves when they withdraw from the body of Christ. They withdraw from active participation in fellowship with other believers. You see, I think to leave your first love talks about the priority of of loving Christ and loving others. It talks about the quality with which you love and it talks about the intensity. We're to be fervent in our love for others. I think that happens to people most often, not intentionally. People just don't cross their arms and say, I'm I'm leaving my first love. I think it's like being in a boat and falling asleep and all of a sudden you wind out in the find yourself out in the middle of the lake and you go, how did we get out here? I think that's how it most often happens to people. You've left your first love. That, that word sometimes translated forsaken is a Greek word, ephemi. And it has two senses. It has an active sense that means you push away from something. And I think that's talking about people who get angry and who get bitter at God or at other Christians. And and they stop loving. They make a decision to stop loving. It's a willful decision. But that word FME also has a passive sense to it, which which means just to release something. Rather than pushing, you just you just kind of release, like a boat that's not tied up and wanders out to the middle of a lake. You become cynical, you you distance yourself, and you just kind of drift away from your relationship with Christ and your relationship with others. What happens in that is your love starts to fade. That's a part of what it means to leave your first love. A couple of weeks ago on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, I, I preached about a warning Jesus gave us about life today and specifically for us as Christians. It's Matthew twenty four twelve, where he said, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. That's a word to Christians because the word love there is agape love. And I, and I showed you, it's that word to grow cold is what you do when you blow on a hot cup of coffee. By blowing on it, you make it colder. And, and it's a word all about how society and the evil in the world will have a tendency to cause our love to grow cold. We won't be proactive in loving other people. We'll start to withdraw and hunker down and pull away because we're afraid that that big bad world's going to get us. And so our love grows cold. I absolutely believe that happens. And Jesus was giving us fair warning on something very, very real. The spirit of the age can dampen your love. 
There's no doubt about that unless we're careful. But I think so many other things can cause a person to leave their first love. Willfully or at least to drift away. Anger. Bitterness. I've been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by other Christians. I've been disappointed in God for how my life has turned out. Or how about this one? How about busyness? Misplaced priorities? Too much time given to, to work or to sports or recreation or, or anything else. All those things are fine. It's just when they take the priority and when they become your first love. This is a hard confession for me to make, but I, I felt like I needed to say this, this to you guys this morning. For me, one of the things that causes me to drift from my first love sometimes is the ministry. I can get so busy doing for God and doing for the church that my priority of focus on my relationship with Jesus can wane at times. Uh, that's hard to admit, but I just want you to know we're all in the same boat in terms of this wrestle, this struggle we have with maintaining that first love that, that we're called to. So I want to stop right now just for a quick second. We're almost done. On the back of your bulletins, there's an opportunity to take some notes. There's not a whole lot of room for notes, but I, I want you to do something right now, please. I want you to write down things that cause you or can cause you to leave your first love. You probably are pretty aware of what they are. We usually are. It could be anything I shared or it could be something else that you thought of that you have seen in your life has caused you to pull away from loving your brothers and sisters or, or from loving Christ. Write it down right now, okay? We're going to use it here in just a quick moment. He goes on to say, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The Nicolaitans, I'm not sure, scholars aren't sure if that's a real people group or if it's symbolic term. Uh, Nicoya, Nikaio rather, we already looked at, means conquer. And Laos means people. These were a group that conquered the people. Now, the Judaizers did that by laying all kinds of extra law on people and putting them back under this performance. These guys were just the opposite. They preached a message that was licensed to sin at every turn. You know how big a crowd you can get preaching that kind of message? Boy, you talk about tickling people's ears. That'll do it. You can get a big following like that, but you were really conquering the people because you were putting them under a false gospel. These also lorded it over the people in that they had the sense that they had the true revelation and they were sharing it with the paltry, poor people who didn't know any better. If God ever gives you a position in leadership, you always need to be a servant leader. Did you hear me? You always need to be a servant leader. I so appreciate my staff here at the church because everyone on staff understands that we're called to be servant leaders, not to lord anything over anybody. So they hated what, what Christ hated and that they were hard workers, so that's good, but they didn't love what he loved. They'd left their first love. And that's sad. The promise is to overcomers. And that word is in the present, is a present active participle. It means to overcome and to keep overcoming. Do you know that's the story of your life and mine? You can, no one can ever say, yeah, 25 years ago I overcame. As if that's the, 
if 25 years ago you overcame, then one day after that you died. Do you get what I'm saying? Because life is a continual process of overcoming. It's a continual process of being conformed to the image of Jesus and letting him have his way and his work in us. The promise if you overcome is to eat of the tree of life. That's referred to in Genesis in the garden and that same tree is going to show up in the new Jerusalem. It's a promise of eternal life and a place in heaven. It's, it's a statement of God's plan being fulfilled, totally fulfilled through imperfect yet redeemed people. That's who we are. All right. We're going to stop there today. I'd hope to get through Smyrna, but we'll get Smyrna next week. I want you to stand if you would, please. So here's what I want to, to finish with. My challenge for you today is to consider the standard, the plumb line that God laid out for Ephesus. Where are you at with your first love? Now, I don't mean you've left it and you've just totally rejected it and abandoned it. I don't think you'd be here if that was the case. But so often for so many of us, that that drifting over time is such a real possibility. Think about those things that you wrote down when I asked you to write down the things that caused you to leave or distance yourself from your first love, your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with your brothers and sisters. Think about what you wrote down. But then I want to leave you with this. The scripture encourages us very clearly to remember, to repent, and to return. If you're here today and you you would say to me, Pastor Ken, I see how my first love has kind of faded a bit. I have some of the issues. I've allowed other things to get in the way. I've got anger and bitterness towards God for how life has turned out. Towards brothers and sisters who've disappointed me. Uh, it's not going the way I thought. I'm anger, angry. I, I'm bitter. I'm, I'm just kind of disillusioned. Or I've let so many other things in life become the priority that that passion and that zeal in my walk with Christ is not what it was. You need to remember, repent, and return. Here's the one thing I want to make sure, you, make sure you understand about that. Christ is not saying to you, nor am I saying to you. So you just need to work a little harder to make him the priority of life. You know what? You can stand here today and say, I am going to, I'm going to have more quiet time. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to have more fellowship. I'm going to do all the right things. If your focus in this is on what you're going to do, you may last a month. When Jesus says to you and to me, we need to return to our first love. We remember, we repent, and we return. And the picture you need to have in that is not, so work harder at this first love business. It just dropped in my heart this morning. It's the picture of the prodigal son. He was off in a bad place and he remembered what he had at home with his father. He repented and returned. And the picture in that is this, folks. You make one step towards God. You humble yourself and be honest about your first love, where it's drifted, where it's faded. You make one step and God is the father in that story. He will run at you, run after you, embrace you, put the ring on your finger, the robe on your back. He'll do all the work. 
to restore that first love. It's not about trying harder. It's about just being honest to say, Jesus, you got to help me with this. I can't do this. And do you think he'll do it? I'm convinced that he'll do it. So as we wrap up this morning, um, the altar's open. Ministry team, if you would come on up now so people can uh, meet with you if they want special prayer. If you want to just come and settle some things about this very thing with God, if you want to just be alone, if you go to the side rails, that will be your way of saying, I just want some alone time with God. You can have that alone time with God right where you're at. But if you need any special prayer about this first love issue or anything else going on, there's some folks up here that will be happy to pray with you, okay? So after a few minutes, I'll close us out and and pray and send you home in the blessing of God. So Joshua, if you'll just lead us here for a minute.